true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the, the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the scriptures, for they reveal things to us that we never would know apart from them. Apart from the testimony of the scriptures, we would never know about the fact that Jesus was before all things, that Jesus was the one through whom all that which was created had been created, that Jesus is indeed the one who has life in himself, that Jesus is the one who is the true light of the world. We would never know these things if it were not for these words in this book that you have given us. We pray for your spirit to come, to shine its light, to illumine our minds that we might understand the scriptures. And in understanding that we would believe the scriptures. And in believing that we would act upon the scriptures. And we ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Recently in the news, I was fascinated by one particular story, and that was a story that took place in Naples, Florida, and it took place in a church. It was a good story. It was one that sort of made my heart glad in some ways. And that was because Davian Navarre Henry Only, who was 15, rose within that church and said these words. My name is Davian and I've been in foster care ever since I was born. I know God hasn't given up on me, so I'm not giving up either. His desire that filled his heart, that prompted him to rise before the congregation that day, was to ask someone to adopt him. He desperately desired to be part of a family. He had never known what it was right to be part of a family that sticks together. He found in his research when he was uh, trying to find his mother that indeed he had been born while she was in prison. He discovered that just months before his own search to uncover who she was, that she had passed away. And so he would never know his birth mother. He had gone from foster family to foster family, the instability that goes along with that, not knowing where you'll be next year. Who you'll be with next year. He wanted security. He wanted love. Not just to experience love, but someone to also love back. He could think of no greater gift at 15 as to have a family to call his own. 
I thought of that this week as I was looking at this passage and seeing the great wonder of what really is going on here. Because the big idea of this passage is that Jesus was sent to bring us into a family, the family that is known as the Trinity. Let's look at this text for a little bit this morning. First off, look, the true light came into the world. John, the apostle, had been writing about John the baptizer, as we mentioned last week, who testified about the light, and John shifts his attention back to what he calls the true light. He's building, going to build upon the foundation he laid in verses 1 through 5 as he returns to this idea of the word. He calls the word the true light, the authentic, real, genuine light. And so he's, in a, he's setting the, the word apart as a light from all the other lights that exist. Remember we saw last time that, uh, from John 5 that he calls John the baptizer a, a lamp. He shed light as well, but he was not the true light. Jesus himself, this word that is talked about in one one, is the true light. And therefore he's not to be confused at all. He's not to be confused with the lesser lights that existed. Lights like John the baptizer himself. Lights like the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nahum, all of the rest. Not to be confused with lesser lights like David, Moses. The Jews thought of them as great lights that burn brightly for God's glory, and yet compared to the true light, they are indeed lesser lights. Not only is he to be set apart and seen differently from the lesser lights, but also from the false lights. Even in Jesus' own day, there had already been false messiahs that had risen up, seeking to win the heart of the people for their political agendas, seeking to raise up armies to throw Rome off of Israel. There already were false messiahs, and there would be even more false messiahs. It's not limited to that time, but even now there are some who claim to be the true son of David. There are some who claim to present a new form of Christianity. There are still false lights that get sent into this world, seeking to lead people away from the true light. And so we must be very careful when we consider these things. John then drops a bomb, so to speak. Because he's been talking about the Word, He's been talking about the fact that he existed before everything everything else came into existence. He's been talking about how he was with God. He's been talking about how he was God. But then he makes a rather bold statement. That the light was coming into the world. There was a big change that's about to come in John's Gospel. The light which is transcendent is suddenly going to become close, to draw near, to be imminent, in a way. He's coming, not just to Israel, but the world. World is one of these big words that John uses. That big and that it's long, but he uses it a lot. 
80 times in this gospel. He is going, yeah, wow. <laughs> he's going to use that word, world. He's, he's driving this point home to the, to the Jews that Jesus was coming not just for them, that God had a bigger plan. Now, it was already there in the Old Testament. Isaiah himself testified to it. We saw it last, time, last week when I, I mentioned that it was too small a thing for him to be a light to the nation of Israel, but he was also going to be a light to the nations, the Gentiles. It was too small a thing for God to send Jesus just to Israel because he wanted to glorify his son, to give him as much glory as he possibly could from people. And so this light, this true light, is going to be sent not just to one people, but to the whole world, so to speak. God had bigger plans than Israel had. And so John continues and he says that he gives light to everyone. That should make us ponder for a moment. What does it mean that he gives light to everyone? Well, initially we think, let's just look at the word to give light, and that's pretty simple, right? We would think it literally means to shed light, to illumine, just like a lamp lights up a room. It also was used in the scriptures, and as well as outside the scriptures, to enlighten with spiritual knowledge. That doesn't necessarily mean it's an internal sort of thing, like you see in Gnosticism. That's what they talked about, you that you receive special knowledge and that you're sort of speak one step above the other people because you understand something that they don't but this is this special knowledge was given to you the true light comes not just to shine but to give light to everyone okay i haven't even answered what this means yet first off it means that the light of general revelation shines on all people precisely so that they may be without excuse. When we speak about general revelation, what we mean is creation, that which God has made. Everything that is in creation speaks to their existence as well as some of the characteristics or attributes of God. That light is available to everyone. It shines to everyone, regardless of their background, regardless of their intellect, regardless of their culture. We see this in Psalm 19, which begins, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It speaks to us if we would but listen. Paul builds upon this idea in Romans 1, for he says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And so he speaks of this, there's a content, a body of knowledge that exists in creation. When we look at creation, we should be able to see the power of God, who is able to create such mammoth things. Learned a couple weeks ago of this new planet they discovered, which is like nine times larger than, I can't remember right now. Is it Jupiter? It's humongous, with an orbit that just boggles our imagination when we compare it to the orbits that we know of in our own little solar system. God must be huge to do these things. 
He must be powerful to do these things. He must be wise to be able to place things in the proper place. Remember, all about gravitational pull. These laws that he created that not only maintain creation, but also enable life to exist. It all declares his glory, his wisdom, his power, if we but listen. But it's not just this light that shines, I don't think is merely about general revelation. I think it's about more. I think it's also about the Imago Dei, the image of God. That he has made each person in his own image. Now, because sin has come, that, that image is defaced but not erased. It still exists, but it has been sort of crumpled. I always like to think of like a Coke can. You know, it's meant to be perfectly smooth and round, but you know, sometimes when we would finish drinking them, when I was a kid, we'd step on them. And we'd either we'd do the accordion thing or we'd, you know, step on them so, on the side of it so that it comes up and sticks to our feet. You know, clunk, clunk, clunk. All right. It's defaced, but it's still there. It's still a Coke can, even though it has been defaced. And so sin has come and, and defaced the image of God within us, and, but it's still there. And so even the most ardent atheist, and I'm sure there are a couple of exceptions, but even the most ardent atheist has some sort of moral code that is evidence that the image of God still exists within them. Though they try to suppress everything about it, they still have some moral code. They still know... Perhaps that no one should lie to them. Now, in their own twisted way, they might think it's okay for them to lie to other people. But don't lie to me. Don't take my stuff. Okay? Everybody gets that. It's a trace of the image of God within the heart of people who refuse to believe that he exists. And so... There are people with their works of art, with their films and everything, which they think they're denying the reality of God, and actually what they do is it peeks through. People who have no intention of promoting Christianity in their books and movies still have a theme of redemption that runs through them precisely because they are made in the image of God and long for redemption. They know that all is not right in this world, and so there's still something that longs for something greater. To rescue them. And so the, the Word, who is the true light, shines both in general revelation and in the Imago Day. The problem is, of course, that we sinners have exchanged the truth for a lie, and as a result, we misinterpret creation apart from God's grace. So sin renders general revelation in the image of God ineffective. So the light was coming to set things right. Secondly, this morning, the true light. We would think it would be welcomed, right? The true light was rejected by the world and by Israel. John lets us know more clearly the relationship that existed between the word and the world. He says, first off, that he, the, the light, 
the word was in the world. That's the same verb that we find in verse 1. The word, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And so I think he's continuing that same idea that ever since the beginning, he was in the world. Wait a minute. Didn't John just say he was coming into the world? Yes, he did. Something's about to change in the way in which the Word was in the world. Since the beginning, because he is God, and therefore he is omnipresent, which is a big word for present everywhere, because of that, the Word was always in the world. He cannot not be in the world. If he's everywhere, obviously he's in the world. And so he's been here. He's been present. He is not the God, so to speak, of deism. For those of you who remember deism from some American or philosophical religion class, whatever, God makes the world. God goes, isn't that wonderful? And then God walks away. He just lets the world spin, do its own little thing, and he gets, I don't know, distracted or entertained by something else. The deists never say this. They just think that God made it. Okay? There's enough testimony, they believe, and general revelation to, to believe that God made the world, but then God walked away from the world. He abandoned it. What John is saying is, God has not abandoned the world. The Word still is in the world. He's still controlling what happens within the world. He's still sustaining the world by His power and His wisdom. As we see in places like Colossians 1. And so, He's present everywhere. But he's going to be present in a new way that John hasn't quite told us yet that we'll get to Tuesday night. But but he reminds us that the world was made through him. That the world is part of everything that which was made. The world is not eternal. The world has a beginning. The world will have an end. But the world as it was created is, as we see from Genesis 1, good. So, so in, in, light of, in light of creation, the world is good. But we see that with Adam's disobedience in Genesis chapter 3, that something happens to the world that the world falls with us, that God, as we saw in Romans 8, uh, as Mike read for us, the world has been subject to futility under which it groans. And so all is not right in the world, but it's not right precisely because of our sin. See, we don't just mess up our own personal lives, we've messed up everything else too. The world became a disaster, a glorious ruin, just as we have become a glorious ruin. And so because we and it are fallen, the world becomes idolatrous to us at times. For instance, the same author here, later in his first letter, first chapter, I believe that's second chapter, actually, verse 15, do not love the world. God made the world. Or the things of the world. 
Okay, he's speaking of this in terms of its fallenness, of its gone astrayedness. And so he says, don't love it. Don't love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a bold, frightening concept right there. That if we cling to the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in us because we've become idolaters with regard to the world. John's not the only one. James chapter 4, he's lamenting, you adulterous people. Speaking just like an Old Testament prophet. Okay. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so, we have to think with them that idea of, in terms of its fallenness, in terms of the world's corruption, we are to have no part of that. We're not to be friends with that. We're not to love that. John continues. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Did not recognize him. Did not love him. Did not have fellowship with him as intended. This is a shocking sort of statement. The world did not recognize its own creator. Due to sin, as I've mentioned, but I'll repeat because it bears repeating, we are like blind men who cannot see the light even though it shines brightly. Sin has put something over our eyes so that we cannot see. Jaden had one of her friends over for a sleepover. It was Jaden was so excited. It was her first sleepover the other day. She had a friend over, and her friend had those things you get on the airplane to cover your eyes so that nothing gets through. And that is us. Apart from Christ. Blinded. The light shines. The problem is not the light. The problem is us. And our unwillingness and inability to recognize the light. But John continues. It wasn't just the world that did not know him. It gets even worse. Remember, Israel had promises of redemption. They have the covenant that was given to Abraham that is passed down from generation to generation. The promises of God kind of narrowed down. We have, of course, the the very first promise of redemption in Genesis chapter 3, the the promise of the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake, and, and it all gets narrowed down to Abraham and his family. The seed of the woman is going to come through Abraham's family and will eventually be a blessing to the nations. And it's easy to think, well, the nation gets big. But it all comes back down to one. This, there's going to be one seed. It all kind of keeps funneling down to one person who's going to be Jesus. And so it's as if another point of singularity has been reached. And another big bang is about to occur. 
as God explodes with his plan through the person of Jesus Christ. That's, that's about the only best way I can think about it. It all gets squeezed down until it is just Jesus who then explodes upon the scene to save not just a few Jews, but also untold number of Gentiles as well. A big, a big bang, so to speak. John says it this way, Jesus came to his own. Now, that's fairly vague, because it, it could refer to the world. The world is his own. He made it. He owns it. It's his own. You know, if you check the title and deed on it, it's Jesus. Okay? But he clarifies this when he says, his own people did not receive him. And so he's speaking about that nation that had been prepared for him, prepared by him. Through the covenants, through these promises of redemption, through these great acts of redemption by God, we have the exodus where God comes and delivers them from Egypt, not once but twice. We have the miracles that took place through the ministry of numerous prophets. We have the scriptures that are given. And yet, what happens? Jeremiah 7. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them. Day after day. So God's reminding them, I didn't send a prophet. I sent a bunch of prophets. I haven't stopped sending prophets. Day after day. Continuing in verse 26. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So he's saying that the generation he speaks to did even worse than their fathers did because of the, stiff, the stubbornness of their hearts, the stiff neckedness. Uh, naked. Sounds too much like I'm from the South right there, doesn't it? I'm not saying that. <laughs> I could say that, but I'm not going to say that. Not just Jeremiah, Isaiah 1. God starts a covenant lawsuit. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. He's calling in the witnesses because he's going to testify against Israel. For the Lord has spoken, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox, the simple ox, knows its creator, or its owner rather. And the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel, who's supposed to be smarter than the donkey and the ox, does not know. My people do not understand. That's only the first indictment that Isaiah brings against the people of Israel in this covenant lawsuit. Later in Isaiah, towards the end in 65, we see something very similar as we saw in Jeremiah, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. He's spreading them out to welcome them, to bring them in. But they are rebellious, who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. So it's not just that they've ignored God, but now they provoke God. Sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. They're 
false worship of false gods, their idolatry provoked God. But what we see in the fact that he was going to come to his own is that God is not running away from them. He's not giving up on them. He's pursuing Israel and his people. But they, according to John, have not received him. They did not welcome him. As we'll see at the end of this gospel, they crucify him. So the true light who brought about the world and Israel was rejected by both. Third and last, all who receive the light receive the grace of adoption. While the nation didn't receive him, John lets us know that a remnant did. Seems kind of odd. The nation didn't. But those who did receive him received something. There's this idea of a remnant that we find in the Old Testament prophets. There's a measure of hope, even though there seems to be whole-scale rejection. The Westminster Confession of Faith, for instance, talks about receiving Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel. And so it is proper to talk about receiving Christ. Have you received Christ? It's okay to say that. Because the Bible says that. Sometimes we Presbyterians can get a little dicey about that one and, you know, get hung up on words. Biblical word, biblical concept. In other words, what the gospel is doing is not just offering forgiveness, but offering God Himself. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith is getting at. That's what John Piper gets at in, in his book, God is the Gospel. It's the fact that though all those blessings come with Christ, but the point is Christ. He offers himself to us, and the blessings come with him. Receiving him, John clarifies for us, is to believe in his name. And so those who did not receive him, essentially did not believe. They were filled with unbelief. But those who received him believed on him, on his name. Not just, you know, we, we kind of have an odd use of name that's different from their understanding of name. You call my name Steve. What does Steve mean? I guess, you know, if you go back to the Greek, it's crowned one. And my parents, I guess, were probably clueless to that effect. Um, I don't know why they named me Steve, actually. Um, but our, our names really don't necessarily have any deep meaning, except maybe, oh, it's a family name. All the women in Amy's family, middle name, Beth, family name. Okay, that's just the way it is. It doesn't speak to their character. But when we believe upon the name of God, what we're believing on is not just a, you know, oh, his name just happens to be Jesus. His name speaks to his character. All of his names speak to his character. And so we're entrusting ourselves. We talked about that last week. We're entrusting ourselves into a God who has a particular character. And as this gospel reveals, we see his compassion. We see his holiness. We see his, that he's merciful. 
receive him. The God who has revealed himself, which we'll get to more as we study John. But there's more. I know, I sound just like one of those guys on TV. One of those commercials, you know. When you buy the bamboo steamer, there's more, okay? I don't know why the bamboo steamer always sticks out to me, but it is. And John is sort of like the, bam, you know, the, the guy on the voiceover there for the bamboo steamer. There's more. Not only do they get Christ, but he says they receive the right to become children of God. What's interesting is that whenever Paul talks about adoption, Paul uses sons. John always uses children. We have the right or privilege to be children of God. John Reeves in his book on the Trinity puts it this way. Other gods might offer forgiveness, but this God welcomes and embraces us as his children, never to send them away, for children do not get disowned for being naughty. Elsewhere, he also writes, For the fact that God the Father is happy and even delights to share his love for his Son and thus be known as our Father reveals just how unfathomably gracious and kind he is. Oftentimes we recognize athletes this time of year because some of them are very generous of heart. They'll go to the hospitals and they'll bring gifts with them. They'll find, uh, you know, Shaquille O'Neal would do this. He would have a, a group of kids and the store is theirs for 30 minutes. They can pick whatever they want in the store and he lays out the cash. Okay, we're, we're familiar with that level of generosity, aren't we? This God ups it. He doesn't say, I'll let you pick a couple of gifts. He says, I'll bring you home with me and all that is mine will be yours. Not... It's not limited by what you can grab in 30 minutes. Everything that's mine is going to be yours. You will be my child. The depths of the gospel are amazing when we stop and think about them. They should humble us and encourage us in profound ways because we have been given the privilege of being his children. He's not our caretaker. He's not our nanny. He's not a benevolent friend. He's Father. Those who receive Him receive a privilege they did not seek. This also speaks to the greatness of the Gospel because we were not like Davian. We did not walk up to God and say, please adopt me. If we walked to him at all, it would have been to say, please don't destroy me. For we would be like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he sees God high and holy and lifted up and he says, woe is me. We're not going to go, adopt me. But God shows such incredible mercy, grace, and compassion that he removes his wrath so that he welcomes us in to this family to be loved, and to learn to love. I like how Augustine puts this. But someone who has an only son rejoices in him all the more because he alone will take the possession of the whole inheritance 
and not having anyone else to divide it with and thus turn it and turn out poorer. And so what, he, what he's saying there is that a person who only has one son really rejoices in that one son and doesn't want to see that son made poorer by there being another son. So then he says, not so with God. Okay, God was not content to let his son have everything. He sent the very same one and only son he had begotten through whom he had created everything into this world that we should not be alone, sorry, that he should not be alone, but should have adopted brothers and sisters. It's similar to what we did with Jaden. We did not want her to be an only child. We did not want her to be alone. We wanted her to know the blessing and joy, as well as the frustration sometimes, of having siblings. That's a picture of God. What he has done. John continues, and I need to finish this thing up. He continues that they are not begotten on the basis of their ancestors. This idea he's... Blood, and actually that's plural, bloods. And so it's not about bloodlines. And we'll see later in John, particularly in chapter 10, uh, chapter 8 as well, I think, this idea that they keep saying, well, you know, Abraham was our father. Doesn't matter what your lineage is. That's not the point. We're not made children of God because of our physical lineage. Because your great-grandfather was a pastor or whatever you might try to imagine it is. Not only is it the, not on the basis of blood, but the flesh, the will of the flesh does not have the ability, the capacity, the power to beget spiritual life. As, John will, as Jesus will say in John 3, flesh only begets flesh. In other words, God must save us, and God must save our children. Those children that John is talking about here are born or begotten by the will of God and not the will of man. In other words, it rests upon him and not upon us. We merely receive that which is offered. Calvin and others are rightly understanding the implication, I think, of this passage, and that is that regeneration precedes faith. Augustine notes that Jesus came to weakened minds, to wounded hearts, to the gaze of the nearsighted human soul, or as Martin Luther would say, the soul that is curved inward upon itself. It has no predisposition to trust, to believe in God, actually has a predisposition to unbelief. That is why regeneration must precede faith. As my beloved professor said, faith and repentance are not flowers that grow on the dunghill of human depravity. The issue that comes up here is that why do some believe and why do others not believe? Is it about something that is found in us? Am I smarter than my brothers? Am I more spiritually minded than my brothers? Am I something better than my brothers who do not believe? No. 
I am not. It rests solely within God and not me. And so verse 13 explains verse 12 for us, clarifies it. As we look at this passage as a whole, we see that John continues to sort of drop these bombs on his audience and therefore by extension upon us. The true light has always been in the world, even though the world did not know him. He shines his light on all people, but they don't have fellowship with him precisely because they deny the light that shines. Something was about to change. The light which was in the world was about to come into the world. How was not clear just yet. But he did come bearing a gift. The gift that all who received him would receive this bonus gift. The privilege to become children of God. The greatest gift we could ever imagine from God. Greater than justification. And he offers to bring sinners into God's household as beloved children. And so, have we received him? Have you received him? Have you received this gift? Do you offer this gift to others? As we've talked about last week, that idea of engaging in the mission with God. Or do you kind of keep it to yourself? Let's pray. Father, there's so much more that could be said. Father, I just want us to drink these truths in. I ask that your Spirit would not let us shift our mind far away from these thoughts. But I ask that as we go through this day, you would keep bringing this passage back to mind that we would become increasingly settled in these truths, enraptured by these truths, filled with joy and wonder by these truths, as we anticipate celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ this coming week. And so wean us from the things of the world. May we take greater delight in what we've talked about this morning than in the other benefits that we have. In other words, fill our hearts with greater love for you as we contemplate the greatness of your love for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.